This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, thank you that your mercy invites us to be family with you. Pray help us to cry out to you, help us to draw near to you right now, and pray help us to hold on to you and your mercy all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. So I'd like to begin by inviting you to consider two experiences, two maybe unrelated experiences. One is the experience of being awake at four in the morning. And not the sort of on the way to the airport awake, but in the, I don't need to be awake, I don't want to be awake, but I am awake. And it's dark outside, and there are anxieties and fears inside, and this confused, uncertain future is rushing towards you. Awake. The second experience is of frustration and accusation. Someone says something, does something, and the frustration bubbles up in you, and you think or say, how can you do that? That's outrageous. You're out of of your mind. What did they do? What did they write on Facebook? I got a laugh in the 9 a.m., but it's fine. Thank you. Sometimes you have to ask for what, you know, anyway. So two different experiences, awake in the dark and accusations and frustration, but they share a couple of things. One, isolation. You can feel terribly isolated at 4 a.m. in the unreal dark. If you live alone, there are none of the reassuring normal sounds of life and civilization. If you live with others, they may all be asleep and you don't want to wake them. Unless you're five years old, which you probably will anyway. And isolation. You can feel terribly isolated when accusing another or being accused of being out of your mind. It's the accusation that shoves others away or by which you are discarded. And my observation is that these last 14 months have seen whole new levels of isolation and whole new waves of frustration and accusation. And there are conflicts over racial justice and political leadership and pandemic protocols. And these conflicts can flow from isolation and lead to more isolation. So those experiences, the early awake, the frustration, accusation, they share isolation. They also share both being referenced in our scriptures In Mark's gospel, Jesus is accused of being out of his mind. And in Psalm 130, we have this image of this watchman longing for the morning, for the safety and security of day. These conflicts are not new, but they are painful. And isolation is painful. And in conflict, our reflex reactions are often the classic fight, flight, or freeze. So we can fight, we can fight back, we can yell back, we can say something, we can write something with our voice or with our devices. Or we can flee, cancel, block, avoid. 
or we can freeze and just get stuck in a cycle of anxiety and dread, isolation. The good news today is that we offered a much better response, a much better response to those experiences of isolation and frustration. And the response comes from Psalm 130. It's a response that I think will help us repair the tear, the ripped relationships at home, church, and in our nation. And it's a response I commend you if you feel isolated at 4 a.m. in the morning or embroiled in some conflict. And it might even be a pattern that is helpful to us as we just learn to be together again. So what's the response? Again, it's in Psalm 130. The Anglicans love Psalms. We read the Psalms, we pray the Psalms. We even have our own translation of the Psalms in the prayer book, which I forgot about when I was preparing. So there's a kind of an AP level course you can take during this sermon to try and work out when is he referring to the NRSV, the Pew Bible that he was preparing from, versus the reading you heard from Carly a moment ago. But before we look at the response in Psalm 130, cast your mind back to that experience of isolation or conflict. Because there is something about being in the depths of isolation. And you see this in the Bible, Joseph isolated in the depths of the well in which he had been flung by his brothers. Jonah isolated in the depths of the sea in which he had been flung by the sailors. In the depths of frustration and accusation, in the depths of loneliness and exile, from the depths, what do we cry? Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the deep have I called unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Out of the deeps I have called, or in the Pew Bible version, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And here's the first step. The first step of a response in isolation or conflict, actually crying out to God, not burying, bottling up the feelings, nor spewing them out in social media, but actually out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. There's a focus to the crying out. And there's an intensity to the crying out. Hear my voice. Have we prayed with intensity to God about a recent conflict or a season of isolation? Lord, have mercy. What would you cry out about? And know that you're not alone when you do so. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wasn't just verbally isolated, but physically imprisoned by the Gestapo and later transferred to a Nazi concentration camp. I mean, imagine solitary confinement, a hard wooden bed, dirty sheets, the sound of someone crying in a nearby cell. This is what he prayed. He wrote, O God, early in the morning I cry to you, help me to pray and to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you, there is help. 
I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. And there's this two-word refrain, with you, with you. With you there is light, with you there is help, with you there is peace, with you there is patience. If step one is crying out, step two is drawing near, drawing near, with you. If you, Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who could abide it? For there is mercy with you, therefore you shall be feared. Because as, as we cry out, as we fling our feelings to God, as we draw near, we often experience, as we get closer to the Holy One, a new awareness of our own brokenness. In the midst of an isolating conflict, we realize maybe the problem isn't just out there. It's also in here. I remember aged seven, at elementary school or primary school, Manacourt Primary School, my little blue sweater or jumper, um, this one kid said, hey, if you point with the finger, three fingers are pointing right back at you. That's brilliant, I thought. I was so impressed. I mean, I'm still kind of impressed. Um, as we frustratedly point the finger, we often realize we bear some of the same faults and failings. Our fingers point back at us. And indeed, we're often most prickly to others' faults when the internal voice has been condemning us of the same thing. But as we draw near to God and admit our faults to him, we receive mercy. There's a wideness in his mercy. And that's the second step, drawing near. Confession, receiving mercy. And we can do that alone. We do that here every Sunday morning at the confession. And as a deacon, I guess I'm in most need of confession because I'm charged to lead the confession every time. Let me just check. Phew. Mother Andrea today. Um, but as we confess, we draw near to the one with whom is mercy. Now, is there a scene in your life that you feel most guilty about, remorseful for. Be back there, imagine sitting on the ground, and Jesus is there, reaching out a hand, a scarred hand, scarred by the crucifixion, and you hear him say, you are forgiven. Come up, come be with me. There is mercy with you. There is mercy. And there is more. Verse 7, with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. Plenteous redemption. He can do something to help. He can redeem the situation. I remember, a young, as a young lad, reading The Lord of the Rings in my bed, 
big heavy volume, the full thing in one book, propped up against my knees, and kind of nervous for the hobbits, you know, a lot of dangers. But if they were with Gandalf, ha, <sighs> I thought they were going to be okay. With him, there is plenteous redemption. I never thought, but I kind of did. I just didn't use those words. Because the people who met Jesus wanted to stay with him. We had that scene of them in this crowded room, crammed in, crammed into a room with him to be with forgiveness and mercy and steadfast love and redeeming power. He could do something about it. What did they need? What do you need? Is it not mercy? when you feel like you least deserve it? Is it not to be loved when you feel least lovable? Draw near. With him there is steadfast love, there is mercy. How do we draw near? We can do it in our very inmost beings as we just cry out to God, Lord have mercy. I want to draw near. I want to want to have faith. We can draw near in our inmost beings. We can draw near in our actions as we walk forward to take communion. I want more of you in my life. We can draw near relationally in our community groups as we gather together and read scripture and are honest with each other, pray for each other, acknowledging Jesus at the center. And this drawing near is how we change and become less isolated, less conflict-ridden, create rich community instead. Because we know the phrase, you know, hurting people hurt people. And forgiven people can be forgiving people. As we cry out and draw near to the one with whom is mercy and forgiveness. Whereas people who think they need to prove their rightness before God often show that by needing to prove their rightness before others. And I'm often guilty of that. But those who are reminded we need to be that we are reconciled to God, we receive his mercy, can share that. What we have, mercy, we can share mercy. So step one, crying out, focusing our feelings, crying out to God with intensity. Step two, drawing near, choosing to be with God in our brokenness, receiving mercy becoming the kind of people who can share mercy. And then everything's instantly better. And we stand in a circle and we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya. Probably not, because this is not an instant thing. This is not a microwavable meal. Good things take time. If you ever tasted a beef bourguignon that has been slow cooking for seven hours, you know some good things take time. And in fact, my wife once made one of those and I delivered it to our next door neighbor. Except I was just lazy and I was holding oven gloves and I wanted to open a door while holding oven gloves and holding a beef bourguignon and I slipped and the entire thing went on the welcome mat. Thank you, Sefer Bernardi. Yeah, we need mercy and forgiveness. We receive mercy and we continue to receive mercy because step three is holding on, holding on. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. We're waiting. But 
wait, why are we waiting if we're already with him? What are we waiting for? Because the psalmist is looking forward to the great day, the final day, when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And later in the Bible, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, transformed. Because we may experience some healing now and some reconciliation now, but it's temporary, it's partial, it's incomplete. And in fact, when Jesus compares his sort of inner circle of belonging, this family, you know, whoever does God's will would be is my mother and my brother and my sister. I kind of laugh because Jesus does know about brothers and sisters and complicated sibling relationships and with parents. The closer we are, the more likely there's going to be conflict, the more likely we need this pattern of Psalm 130, crying out, drawing near, and holding on, holding on, receiving mercy, holding on, receiving mercy. And I love older Christians who have been holding on, holding on to God for years. In fact, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you've been a Christ follower for more than 30 years, you may raise your hand. All right, keep them up if more than 40 years, more than 50 years. Well, let's give these people a round of applause. But you've been holding on and he's been holding on to you as you cry out, as you draw on, draw near and hold on. And in fact, two weeks ago when Father Kevin was preaching, he, uh, he used the phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. And I nodded. And he attributed it to Nietzsche and I thought, wait, what? That's like a German nihilist. And I was tempted to interrupt the sermon, but then I was too scared. But I Googled it later, because I thought it was Eugene Peterson's book. And uh, Kevin was right. Eugene actually had seen that phrase and he used it as the title of one of his books. But it's another way of saying, holding on. We need to hold on, be patient, and continue to cry out and draw near. And there's that watchman waiting for the morning. He's holding on. And this is where the sermon ends, where we started. Awake, and it's dark outside, and there's a strange unreality to everything, which is how this feels. This is where we are in God's big story. Waiting, waiting for him, more than those who watch for the morning, longing for the dawn of a new day with the fresh, blue skies of eternity stretching before us. But with that hope, we cry out, draw near, and hold on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for holding on to us, for being more willing to listen than we are to cry out, for drawing near to us that we might draw near to you. Pray for each of us this morning that we would afresh receive your mercy and what we have, help us to share. For your name's sake, amen.